Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 140 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 140, Scott and I are going to talk kind of about quality of quizzing, quality of memorization, how to encourage the improvements thereof. But we don't have a, a lengthy set of detailed notes that we're going down here. We're really just going to kind of brainstorm, share ideas, share concerns, talk about motivations that coaches, things that coaches can do. And of, of course, we're both coming to this from a perspective of like coaching. So I, I coached for a number of years. Uh, Scott, you coach too, right? I never coached at the district level. At the district level, but you coach at the internationals level and the Great West level too. Yep. Yeah. Um, so like I coached for four, five years, four or five years. I forget exactly how, how long it was um, before I, I uh, started doing some uh, officiating and so forth. But uh, now that, but but Scott, you know, used to be a district coordinator. I'm the current district coordinator. So we're, we're approaching this topic or series of topics or nest of topics from a an administrative perspective like what can we do as administrators to encourage memorization and at the same time realizing that most of the encouragement i think the the bulk of the encouragement has to come from quizzers themselves encouraging themselves and encouraging other quizzers but then some of it can come from coaches and i think a much higher I think there's much higher influence that coaches have than administrators have. So that's, a, I mean, before I just kind of go down that rabbit hole, Scott, what are your thoughts about that framework? Does that seem to jive with you? Like coaches have more influence than administrators, but quizzers have more influence than coaches. Does that seem to track for you? Yeah. Yeah. And parents fit probably in between quizzers and coaches, but potentially more than quizzers. Um, but probably still quizzers more than parents. Yeah, quizzers more than parents. You think parents have more influence than coaches? Yes. Interesting. Okay. I suppose it depends on the, I suppose it depends on the, uh, the parent and the child and the relationship. I know speaking for my family, a coach would actually probably have more influence than I would uh, with my kids. Cause I'm, I'm the dad, I'm the lovable fuzzball, uh, and when I say, hey, you should memorize, they, they kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, 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 I know. But if the coach says you should memorize, then they're like, ooh, authority figure who's outside the home. I should probably listen. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm admitting that maybe I'm a terrible parent. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Well, I, I mean, I think I'm attributing a lot of influence to parents because they're often the ones who um, have their kids start, um, not necessarily their influence over level of memorization once they have started. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And I mean, certainly parents can can be the nag police. And, and I've I've definitely filled that role from time to time, uh, reminding my kids like, hey, have you memorized today uh, and giving them a space and a time to be able to do that, scheduling the time, helping them schedule the time and say, OK, here's here's some space. We'll protect that time for you uh, so that, you know, on a daily basis, you can you can get into the get into the word, get into the memorization. So there's definitely I mean, certainly parents can influence in a negative way, big time, uh, you know, if signing their kid up for a bunch of activities, not providing the space, um, discouraging. Yeah. All of that stuff does definitely comes into play. Yep. <clears throat> well, so on that front, um, how do you want to attack this problem? I mean, there's a lot of different angles that we could approach this, but where do, where do you think is a good place to start? I can just start talking. <laughs> yeah. Let's just, yeah, go for it. So I think that, 
I wrote down cycles and trends. I think cycles have a huge impact in the competition level of quizzing. I'm thinking about the district of PNW, um, but you could extrapolate what I'm saying. Um, Because it seems to me that there are cycles where the district is strong and where it is less strong. And when it's less strong, it's easier for it to become strong. (laughs) And when it's strong, it's easier for it to become less strong. And um, it happens roughly every material cycle or roughly um, when one seven-year generation ages out. Um, And that seemed to be very strong and kind of transcend whoever was running the district or the basket of program leaders or coaches. Um, And so because of that, I already think that there's a limit um, to the influence that a district coordinator, a program leader, a coach can have over competition level already. Add to that, I think there are trends. I think most people you would ask would say that quizzing in PNW was stronger in the 90s than it was in the 2000s, than it was in the 2010s, than it was in the 2020s. And to me, that points to not necessarily, oh, we have worse district coordinators and worse program leaders. I think it speaks more to different trends in um, participation levels or church membership levels or um, how kids these days allocate their free time um, and their interest in their free time and demands from school and school related activities um, or, you know, more organized activities, whether it be um, athletics or music or things like that. I don't have kids, um, but I think I'm, I'm on the right track that th- there have been changes um, and trends over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years that might have squeezed out qui- uh, participation in um, something like Bible quizzing. Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, electronics plays a gigantic role in it uh, these days where it, it's the it's an addiction uh, and it's and it's ubiquitous. Uh, it, it's it's um, this endemic desire to spend excessive what I consider to be excessive, but consider a, a huge amount of time playing, you know, moving pixels around on a screen. Uh, and interacting with other people only via the interaction of moving pixels around on a screen. And that's, it's, um, you know, in our family, we've definitely struggled with that. We, uh, we try to keep a lid on it while at the same time giving, uh, you know, the kids, um, one of which is not a kid anymore, he's an adult, but uh, when he was a kid, trying to give them the opportunity to certainly, yeah, play around with electronics, play the video games and so forth and interact with friends that way online. But understanding that there has to be some kind of like uh, limit to that. Uh, and the limit is, you know, I, I remember growing up and uh, parents, when I was growing up, parents and uh, school uh, teachers and so forth were talking about the number of hours kids were watching TV per day. And it was astronomical uh, when I was a kid growing up uh, and it's only gotten bigger. And a lot of that has now been replaced with electronics where a lot of these kids uh, the average kid will come home from school and they'll be playing on electronics until, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night or whenever they go, get, uh, you know, pass out and go to sleep. They wake up in the morning, they go to school and it's rinse repeat. And that's, that's their expression of their adolescence. 
And uh, yeah, I, I see study after study where that's demonstrated to be a certainly highly correlated with non-success as the these kids mature into, into adulthood. So from, you know, my wife and I's uh, perspective, we were like, okay, we need to allow a certain amount of, of electronic usage. Uh, we won't, don't want to necessarily be draconian about it. I think some is, is fine. It's just when it turns into an, an addiction, it's, it's where the problem is. So we had to set up a limit there and there were definitely some moments of headbutting that was there, but I certainly can sympathize with parents, uh, who, you know, dual income required, uh, uh, households and they've got, you know, two, three kids. I can, I can understand with a lot of activities, I can understand parents just being, uh, severely overwhelmed by, uh, the daunting task of trying to regulate what is ultimately, I think, an addiction or can very easily become an addiction. And uh, what do you do uh, for that as a parent? I mean, in, in that way, how much does a coach have influence there versus a parent? I think obviously a parent has more than zero influence. A coach has very close to zero, uh, and an administrator certainly has absolute zero influence over that sort of situation. Yeah, but even in post-collegiate or a collegiate and post-collegiate life, there is more of an importance of digital acumen, right? Like mm. esports is just as um, a legitimate collegiate athletic endeavor as non-esports. Sure. And sure. there's a rise in the value of knowledge work. There's a decrease in the value of just having a bachelor's degree um, in something that you end up to you end up working in. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of value still like increasingly tied up into being, um, savvy and educated technologically and digitally, um, that sure there are more ways that our attention can be pulled to, you know, the endless scrollers on the internet. Um, but I wouldn't say that alone is like the demise of, you know, whatever activities people might be doing. I think there's, there's at the same time, importance placed on a lot of things digitally. Sure. No, um, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm not saying that it's, it's the demise of that. I'm not saying video games is, is the cause of the demise of all other activity, but it's a massive contributor. And I'd also want to dive a little bit down into like, yeah, knowledge work and knowledge workers are, or information workers, right? Uh, that's definitely a skill that's much more highly prized now than it was, say, 20 years ago or f certainly 40 years ago. But knowledge work is different than gaming, right? So esports and sports in general, um, physical sports, at least there's some physical health that comes out of it. Esports, arguably, it's more consumption. And, uh, and so like... I think knowledge work, information work on one side, you're talking about creation. And on the flip side, uh, esports, gaming, videos, um, YouTube, that sort of thing. And don't get me wrong, I think YouTube is an amazing resource in terms of opportunities to learn. Uh, but I mean, there's a, I think you can kind of separate the two worlds between uh, creation and consumption. And a, a, a good way to a, a kind of dive into that, or maybe not a good way, but a overly simplistic heuristic is what is the what is what are the ranges of devices that you can do the thing on right if you're talking about a cell phone up to maybe a tablet 
it's probably more consumption. If you're talking about something laptop upwards to desktop, it's probably, again, with exceptions abounding everywhere, it's not a perfect heuristic. But as you get larger, then you're talking about something that's more creative. And so like, you know, if somebody wants to sit down and create art on a, via a graphical interface, a digital interface, uh, to me, I, I don't particularly see that as fundamentally different than sitting down with art uh, on, on a canvas and oil and paints on a canvas or something like that. It's just the media, it's a different medium, right? Um, uh, paints versus acrylics versus digital. It's just a different medium for the creation of something. And that's great. And so like if somebody sits down and tries to learn a programming language, I think that's very different than somebody sitting down and speed running a particular level, right? So, and of course this line starts to get, get really blurry in the middle because like, well, what, what happens if you decide to sit down and design a video game or uh, design a level, uh, create a level on a video game? And they're like, okay, well, part of me feels like that's creative work and you can, you can almost in a sense, especially as like a 15, 16, 17 year old, you can kind of justify that as a job training uh, sort of opportunity, a career uh, opportunity potentially, like you could discover, hey, I enjoy doing this. Um, I'm particularly good at it. And uh, that sparks some sort of career that comes out of it. But uh, gaming, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that's it's more consumption than it is than it is creation. But all of that aside, even the opportunity for creative work, while I think it has more value than consumption, is still something that will pull away from other activities, right? So if, if you live in a universe where you only have the option of doing 10 activities, uh, you may pick any one of those 10 activities, uh, but there's like a, let's say, all other things being equal, which is never the case, there's a 10% chance you'll pick activity <laughs> one, right? But if there's a thousand different activities, then what's the percentage chance that you're going to, I mean, you're going to have a very different percentage chance of picking activity one. And so I think with the rise of all these other opportunities uh, to invest time in other places or waste time in other places, uh, quizzing has to, has had to compete in that expansive world. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we're definitely in the territory of talking about things that we're not educated enough to talk about, but um, there definitely is a push into greater focus, whatever it is that you're doing at whatever stage of life that you're doing it, right? Uh, which means, you know, spending more focused time on fewer things, which is going to crowd out uh, an amount of activities in a general sense. Um, but one thing that I was going to talk about, cause I think that cycles and trends have a big impact, um, unrelated to the participants. And I think that pure size of participation has a massive impact, you know, um, and that is also a side of who's participating um, or not really, it's it's not reliant on it, right? Like you can have an, an, a really, really mediocre district coordinator with 500 quizzers is going to have a stronger district than an amazing district coordinator with 150 quizzers, right? Like, yeah, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But of course, what we're talking about here is not so much comparing who's a better DC versus a not better DC. It's rather more what can any DC, whether they are good, meh, or not so great, what can what can any any DC do to push the needle in the direction of missional outcome? So unfortunately, like the thing that I was going to talk about was like history and lore and stories, which I think is why 
um, internationals is still hanging on mm. because um, I, I remember Jeremy talking about how he th- I'm going to misphrase what he was saying, but he thinks that the evangelical church or some of the more I don't know what word he used was it devout um, basically the the denominations with more liturgy he thinks will be more resilient because of the liturgy. Um, yeah, I could see that because the, the liturgical churches have a more practiced pattern and that pattern of observance is more, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not just, it, it is cultural. It's very cultural, but it's much more than that. It's yeah, it's lore. It's, um, yeah, I'm not sure what the like, right word is, but yeah. I'm going to talk about me. I'm an anecdote, but like I got into quizzing, not because of my parents, not because of anyone else, but because a good friend was going to do it. And I tried doing it and I was hooked immediately because all the people who had tried to get me into quizzing knew that I was going to be hooked immediately. (laughs) Um, They just weren't successful in getting me to start. But then once I was in, even though I was hooked, there was like such a rich group of people around me of all ages who talked about the history of PNW doing well at Great West, doing well at internationals, the different trips, people like stories of people before them who, you know, were great and like why they were great. And all of that kind of builds more interest among the people already interested to like chase after that. Because I don't know if it feels like you're, it's bigger than, than you or, um, but it just, it, it adds a lot more layers of fun and potential intrinsic motivation that I feel are really, really, I mean, they just kind of either occur naturally or don't in an individual, Um, but they can be exacerbated is a negative word, but they can be like um, brought along more in that sort of an environment. And I think, you know, maybe PNW now just has so few ties to those parts of its history. Yeah, I think that there's something there. Um, there's a certain motivator for, there's a certain motivational factor when you participate in something that is bigger than you, right? Uh, when you join something that is bigger than the individual, the individual becomes more because of the association. And when that thing is has a history and a lore uh, and a, a set of cultures and, and practices and so forth, patterns and and things that adds to the uh, the the growth by association i think right i mean you can see that in almost in almost everything there's certainly you know the connection to the church uh but like the military is a great another example where the military has a set of customs and rituals rituals that's the word i was looking for before the 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 military has a set of uh, lore and history rituals culture uh, a certain set of patterns. Some of those patterns are enacted into specific policy. Like when are you supposed to salute? Uh, in in what respect are you supposed to salute? And how does the salute happen even? Like all of that is codified. Well, a good chunk of that is codified. And uh, it's a sign of respect to follow that and a sign of disrespect when somebody is not following that. And so in joining the military, there is a sense of, connecting to something bigger than the self when you're adopting some of those those patterns and practices i think it does it can definitely add a richness to an activity a thing that's popping into my head is the uh, documentary jiro dreams of sushi about Mm. a renowned sushi maker in japan and having seen that documentary like anyone who's seen it or like knows about the practices and the history of jiro and his son 
it it makes it more alluring, right? You would rather go have that sushi than other sushi, even if you were promised that it would taste exactly the same. Um, and then eating at that restaurant, there is a different type of ceremony and ritual that goes along with eating there. Yes. And I think all of that changes the experience. Um, and I think what you said, like being part of something bigger than yourself – I was always trying to score a 90 in an individual meet, and I knew that it was almost 100% reliant on me. And so when I didn't get it, which I never did, I, I could say like it was my fault. Um, but there was something about internationals where I knew I could be absolutely incredible, and we still were unlikely to win unless the four teammates were also good. And similarly, if I was bad, I could prevent the entire team from winning, even if the other four of them were quite good. And there was something about that that made it the ultimate experience for me. Um, and yeah, I don't know how much that goes along with the ritual part of it, but somehow knowing that you have like simultaneously such a large impact, but such a small impact on the success of a group um, was a powerful motivator. Yeah. Well, apart from quizzing, I, I want to second your recommendation of Jiro Loves Sushi. It is a profound movie. Uh, anybody who hasn't seen it, I encourage you to 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 watch it. It's um it's profoundly moving in a very non profound way. It's a very simple movie, but but elegant and um, yeah, it's something about a master and his craft and the people he works with who care deeply about mastering their craft purely for the sake of being masters of their craft. It's, um, it's humbling and it's beautiful. And so, I mean, a lot of what I've talked about kind of feel like throw up your hands, you know, cause it's like, Oh, I can't really control the cycle. I can't really control the trend and how much can I really control the stories and the history and the, the ritual around a thing. But I think like, I, I mean, I went to a small division three, college basketball game the other day that had 400 people in attendance and they like made they turned down the lights for the introductions they had the full like cheerleading team there for the entire game they had you know like the PA announcer that does all of the sports where more people come and I think there's something important about treating something as equals or as important as you would treat it if it were bigger that can help grow a thing yeah, definitely. That's very true. Because I think from the outside, it can feel like, oh, like, like I remember, you know, why would you keep the top 10 like hidden and then announce them and descending, you know, and it's like, you know, we're, I always thought that it was important to add that sort of really pomp and circumstance to increase the fun of everyone. Because I wanted to like, you know, like in the days before quicker statistics, like it was very important for me to announce the Great West qualifiers like at the conclusion of that fifth meet because it was when everyone was there and I wanted every single person to have that experience of being announced as qualifying as they go up onto the stage, you know, with the increasing group of 20 or 25 that were also had also qualified. Um, and yeah, so I think that sort of, I think pop and circumstance also can have a negative connotation, but like it's, it goes along with the ritual and the lore and the storytelling. Right. Indeed. Well, so as a one thought that 
that popped in my head as we were talking before we started recording uh, the episode was one of the aspects that an administrator can do is try to organize the meet in such a way that it increases the fun of the participants in the meet, which seems like it would be a no brainer and always be a good thing. So the idea being that, Hey, if you have the opportunity to make a meet quote unquote, more fun, that, uh, you should do that as a, as an admin, as a coach, even as a quizzer, like if anything that you can do to add fun to the event so much the better. And I think there's some truth to that when it comes to things like recruiting, right? So if you're talking about wanting to grow a district, if your meets aren't that fun relative to meets that are very fun, I think the meets that are very fun will probably have a higher probability of drawing people in to want to participate in them and potentially then be interested in continuing to participate, which then pushes the mission forward in terms of uh, encouraging people to memorize. So Okay, great. But I had this sort of, I don't know, counter thought. Would love to get your thoughts on the counter thought here, Scott. If imagine the fun that an administrator can do in the in the meet. I think there are kind of it falls into two groups. Number one, you can have fun that is directly tied to quizzing. So it'd be things like, like exactly like what you're talking about, announcing the top 10 positions by name and descending order, uh, making a huge big deal about like announcing the three teams for finals, uh, having a great MC master of ceremonies who can, you know, be very charismatic and uh, having the equivalent of cheerleaders, right? Like, like people encouraging the crowd to get rowdy, uh, and to cheer for their teams and so forth. There are different aspects I think that would make the, the meat more engaging and more fun, that are directly tied to quizzing. And then there are things that are not directly tied to quizzing. Uh, so you could have um, more side activities going on. So at IOC, uh, back at SPU in, in July, we certainly had a lot of fun doing quizzing, but we also had a, a you know fair number of breaks. It was uh, spaced out over three days. And so we had lunch breaks and dinner breaks and evening breaks and so forth. And so we had various activities planned. And one of those one of those days we had a laser tag uh, put together, and I think another day we had like various games planned down in the loop at SPU and stuff like that, totally unrelated to quizzing, right? And fun was had by all, and it seemed. But my sort of counterpoint here, or counter thought, is fun outside of directly quizzing related things, right? So, and there's, there's a certain amount of fun. I should also mention there's a certain amount of fun just from scoring, right? So if I go into a quiz and I don't score anything versus I go into a quiz where I score a lot, the scoring of those points adds to the fun that I have and the thrill of being part of it. So that's sort of a, maybe even a third category. It's certainly part of quizzing, but it's directly proportional to what I've accomplished in, in a particular quiz. So fun outside of, let's say, scoring is evenly distributed regardless of memorization. And so then if that is, that is true, and given that that is true, does that perhaps disincentivize memorizing, or at least if not disincentivizing memorizing, does it, is it energy that is invested in something that is not going to incentivize memorizing? I, I always thought of the impacts as indirect. Like quizzing is enough quizzing that 
any extra fun that it is outside of the competition will still disproportionately um, attract people who are interested in quizzing. Um, and I, to me, like the point of making the whole thing enjoyable was um, getting as many people as possible to want to do quizzing. Um, so I don't know that it would you could make it so fun that people would still do quizzing but not memorize anything. I don't know, that seems like it would be a weird um, chain of events to happen. You would think that, but I think that might, I mean, that I don't, I don't know for sure, but that might be coming from your bias of being one of those, you know, top tier quizzers though. I mean, there's definitely a set of quizzers and it's not a small set of quizzers who attend meets, but they really don't participate in the quizzing, I, I participate in the sense of like scoring points. They they might get an open book here and there, but you know they're really scoring. If over the course of an entire meet, they might put a point or two on the board, uh, but that's about it. And you 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 think, well, wouldn't you get bored if you're if you're not trying to memorize more and trying to be more competitive? And I I think they enjoy the aspect of quizzing. They don't hate quizzing, right? They're still participating in it, which is great. They're, we're moving the needle. We're encouraging them to memorize more than they would have otherwise. Maybe not much more, but it's it's a little bit more than zero. But they're attending the meet because the meet itself is fun. And there are a lot of fun things that happen as a result of being participating in some of these meets. So like district championships, as one example, the last two years, we held it at a retreat center uh, up in a camp in the middle of the Cascades. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, there's dorm facilities there where the kids were and coaches were staying overnight. Um, we had, you know, really decent food in the facility and it was just an enormous amount of fun. Great West is another example, uh, camp up in the uh, Canadian Rockies. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun activities that are there at IOC, similar to IBQ. We had things like, um, I already mentioned the, the laser tag, but we had things like the, um, uh, talent show and other, other sort of fun activities. Uh, and I, I I can certainly see the calculus from a, a non-trivial number of people to say like, yeah, I'm probably not going to memorize a lot of verses, but being in this program is just, even if I don't do anything, it's still fun. Sure. And again, maybe this is coming from how much I valued the higher um, competitors, but it was always very important to me to make certain events exclusive. Mm, um, yeah. like district champs. And so as the district dropped in size, I wanted to drop the number of teams that qualified for district champs because I'm like, I want it to maintain the same level of you have to work this level of hard to get there. Right. Um, this is why I didn't want siblings who didn't qualify coming on great West trips. Um, because to me, I was like, this fun and experience is like, sh I want to have it limited to the people that qualified. Um, I don't know, like, if that had a net positive impact on, you know, people's motivation and whatnot. But that was like, that was my line of thinking. Yeah, I think there's some wisdom there. I definitely think there's some wisdom there. Because if if you, yeah, so like Great West is a great example. If if you say to somebody who didn't qualify for great West in terms of their memorization, uh, like either it positional for the, uh, across the district or this year it's positional across the district. Plus we are requiring uh 50% synonymous mastery of the material. 
Uh, so if you're not able to, you know, quote through the material at 50%, again, synonymously, not verbatim, right? But if you, if you're, if you can't quote half the material, uh, you're not going to be able to go to, to Great West. If we allowed somebody to come along on the Great West trip who didn't prepare, uh, and didn't qualify in that way. And certainly we would say like, okay, you're not, you're not quizzing, but you can come along and just kind of hang out and have fun. It's like, well, wait a minute. What are we, what are we doing here? Are we, are we cheapening the value of Great West? Are, it's no longer a reward because we're saying, well, anybody can come. Um, and what does that lead to? Does that lead to more memorization or less? Right. And I don't know all of the, you know, all of those um, after effects um, because I only have data on, you know, the district at a specific state in time at whatever point in the cycle and the trend that it was at, you know? Right, right. But I mean, I think you like the years that we took two teams to internationals, like that was the discussion, right? It was, Hey, we see a different, a higher level of competition and preparedness. And we want to be rewarding the level with who gets to go to internationals and not a specific number necessarily. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's why it, some years you take 20 instead of 25 to Great West. Um, I think we discussed taking 30 um, one year. And so like it, it all really was within the, the same kind of motivation of we want to be rewarding a certain level of effort and execution. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, we knew that whoever went on Great West almost without fail was more motivated going forward because of the experience, whether it was fun, whether they saw a higher level of competition to aspire for, whatever it was. And so because of that, you almost wanted to take as many as possible. (laughs) And so like, but there's still some balance there. I don't know what it is. You know, it could be that if a district is shrinking and you decide, hey, only two people met whatever quoting requirement we have, we're going to take a team of two to internationals, that that's not the right move, you know? Um, But I don't really know where that balance lies. I think it probably... Again, based on a scientific study I just made up in my head, so, you know, caveat emptor, uh, et cetera, it feels like if you don't have enough qualified quizzers for a viable team as a unit, then it's better to go at zero, um, which really is lame for like those two people who qualify because they're not like, let's say, let's say we're talking about IBQ, you really need to have four people. I think you can probably get away with three. Uh, but it's really hard. I think you, you really need four, ideally five, but, uh, I, somewhere in that ballpark, I I think four is sort of the target. Once you get sub four in terms of qualification, it becomes really difficult. And do you say, well, we're going to, if you only have two people who qualify, are we going to then artificially take the next two? So we have a team of four. So at least those two can have that experience. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's hard to say. Did you ever have an experience? Like, I don't think I've ever had an experience where somebody who was a quizzer was eligible to attend Great West as a non-quizzer. Did you ever see that happen or or experience that? Um, I think there were cases of a of a younger sibling with who had an older sibling on the trip and or a parent who was coaching. Mm. Um, and I don't remember, I don't remember if I ever was so strong as to prohibit like mere attendance, 
but I, I was pretty sure I prohibited like riding in the the van convoy. <laughs> right, right. We had a we had a situation where um I was it last year? Maybe it was yeah, I think it was last year. We had a um uh, a quizzer who qualified on her own merits uh, to be able to attend Great West. And her family was planning a vacation around that time anyway. And so what they'd, and, and actually fairly near the area, <laughs> or, or not not fairly near, because it's a big area, the travel uh, route, but they were, they were essentially planning a vacation around that time in a spot that was not terribly out of the way of the trek that we were making to be able to get to Great West. And so she asked, hey, can we travel along our family as part of your convoy, but in our own vehicle uh, kind of thing? And what ended up happening is the quizzer who qualified hung out with the other quizzers in in the actual van uh, or set of vans that were, were traveling up to Great West, the official group. And the family kind of trailed along Sometimes they were with us in the convoy. Sometimes they weren't. Uh, they kind of went went off and did their own thing. And I think they the the family observed a few quizzes, maybe observed a half a day of quizzes or something at the meet, and then kind of went and did their own thing until this particular quizzer was was done. And then uh, they stayed one night, and then they the, and then they departed. And I think that was that was reasonable. But yeah, if it had been a situation where it's like okay, there's a quizzer eligible kid coming along with that group who then rides with everybody else and participates in all of the fun activities that, yeah, that starts to, that makes me start to question if that's a good idea. Right. And I always tried to explain it. Right. I was like, I'm not intentionally wanting to just limit fun for people. Right. Right. (laughs) But, um, here's how I view the importance of the activity being just for the people that qualified. Um, and I think parents are always really recent receptive to that. Right. Yeah. And that makes, and that makes sense to me. Uh, I've experienced parents not being receptive to these sorts of things. Unfortunately, uh, when I was a coach, we had a minimum memorization requirement, uh, one particular, uh, year and it was really low. I forget what it was. I think it was like five verses or something where you have to memorize at least five verses and quote them again, synonymously with lots of help. Um, but if you can quote the five verses, then you qualify for the next meet. And there were some uh, kids who we actually did this as a, as a, as a collective decision. It wasn't coaches mandating it. It was coaching. It was coaches exploring this option with the quizzers at the beginning of the year. And the quizzers saying, yeah, this sounds like a, a reasonable policy. We implemented the policy. And a few months later, there were some quizzers who didn't qualify. And uh, the quizzers actually, to their credit, were kind of like, yep, this is totally fair. We agreed to this policy. We didn't, we didn't memorize our, however many verses it was. Um, and this is totally reasonable that we don't get to go to the quiz meet. And there were some, there was, there was, there was definitely some pushback from, from some parents. Um, one parent had some very aggressive pushback, unfortunately. Um, but, but several parents, uh, had some, let's say non-aggressive, but very, it was definitely their, uh, pushback. And I don't, I don't know that that was, I still think it was the right thing to do do in that circumstance for us for as a collective coach slash quizzers to come up with those minimum requirements. I mean, it was certainly collaborative rather than imposed at the beginning of the season. The last thing I think we should have done is renege on that commitment, you know, a few months later uh, in the, in the, in the face of a few quizzers who, who didn't qualify. Um, Yeah. That's unfortunately a a history, a, a sort of a history thing that I have there. Uh, 
But I mean, there's a difference also between district quizzing and Great West. So like, I, I totally agree. Great West needs to be a reward. It's It's got reward written all over it. Um, and then like, I think DC, the last, I don't know how many years now, the last several years, all teams have been invited. I would love to be able to get us to a point where we're large enough to justify uh, limiting it back down, turning it into a reward. Um, I think for right now, it's sort of the, the the reward for everybody. It's like you participated in quizzing for the season, therefore you get the DC reward. But as as we grow back... Uh, I can definitely see a universe where DC becomes uh, more reward or re- reward oriented and falls closer in line with Great West. But then like at the district level, district, I mean, and when I say district meets, let's say one, two, three, four, five in, in PNW, we have five regular season district meets, a preseason meet, and then district championships postseason. So in those five regular season meets, let's say it's meet two and there's a quizzer, there's a potential a quizzer eligible person at, who shows up at district meet number two. Uh, we don't really have fun activities, but if we had fun activities, do we exclude that person? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think we want to try to get them on stage certainly, but how do we go about doing that without demotivating the rest of the, the organization? Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Certainly we want to make, I mean, as DC, you want to make the meets as fun as possible. That certainly, I think that probably outweighs the potential negative of people showing up who haven't memorized, um, but it's hard to make those calculations. It is, because I think at the end of the day, parents, but especially coaches, and then to a lesser extent than coaches, um, district coordinators and program leaders, like they're there to make as much as possible easier on the quizzer. Right. So don't let the quizzer get frustrated because they don't know how to formulate a strategy between all the base subtypes, you know, and all the quizzer selected subtypes. But after that, it's really like the quizzers themselves and whatever culture they exist within Uh to be motivated. Right. Like I just cared a ton about the competition and it was leveled up by the people around me that were better than me that would talk about the history (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other quizzers they had seen who were better than they were. Um, and all of that stuff, I think is just really hard for any adult to have a large impact on. Like, you know, my first coaches didn't, weren't familiar with quizzing. And so I learned slowly on my own, how do you answer chapter verse reference questions? Um, what is it like, you know, should I specialize? Should I not? All of those questions I had to just almost trial and error myself. And so if I'd had a more experienced coach, I would have been quicker to answer those questions, but it wouldn't really have changed anything about my competition, my motivation competition level. Right. Right. Well, so flipping to a moment to coaches who, who I think have much more influence, actually, before we go there, you wrote, you wrote a question in the notes here that I think is We've circled around this a little bit, but I think I want to dive in directly to it. What drives motivation, right? So from a quizzer's perspective, what drives motivation, right? There's, there's the, there's the thrill of being able to get more points, the thrill of placing higher to meet the rewards that come from qualifying for great West and, and so forth. But like, 
in general and maybe even specific because i think what motivates people is going to be different based on where they who they are where they are what year they are um i, th I i've known i'm sure you've known several quizzers who their motivations uh, when they were say 15 or 16 were very different than when they were 18 right their senior year their motivation for like what's what's driving you to memorize what's driving you to participate in quizzing how does it shift over those different years and how does it how does that change based on the kind of personality trait or the competition level and and so forth what what do you, i mean that's a big loaded question there but what drives the motivation i mean i don't know how how helpful this is but i largely observed that i was not able to move the motivation needle as before. a coach as a coach for quizzers. And so the, the best that I could do was, um, make as much as possible around the fringes easier on quizzers. But then I worked to define with them what the shared goals were like thinking specifically about great Western internationals, because to me, the largest possible, um, needle mover for intrinsic motivation. And it's that, it's really that, well, I, I guess, if you want your team to do well, that's extra extrinsic motivation. Um, but the the biggest needle mover was um, was that like wanting to do well in a group. Um, and because at the end of the day, if you're going to level up at quizzing, you are going to by yourself decide to spend more time in study. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It and, has to be. Yeah. And if a coach does that once a week, or if a parent does that on some interval, like it's better than nothing, but in my opinion, it really doesn't move the needle, right? It can move the needle from a quizzer who gets a half question a quiz to when they get a question a quiz. Um, but it didn't move anything more. Like it was just like a really tiny, tiny optimization. Um, and so like when I was district coordinator, I was like working on whatever tiny optimization I could grab onto, which is why I focused on consistent officiating right because that's one thing that can frustrate quizzers when they think they did the same thing as a buddy in a different quiz and they were treated differently and i was like that would be hugely demotivating so that's something that i can absolutely try to make as consistent as possible um but at the end of the day if someone's going to go from being a kiever specialist averaging a 40 to a full material quizzer averaging a 75 it wasn't anything about the, st the structure that i had control over yeah yeah totally fair well, I will, I will, as a counterpoint, I'll share something, a story I've shared in previous episodes, but there was the, you know, the 10 versus experiment I did as a coach. Uh, there was one particular year. I, I, I want to say it was, I can't even remember what year it was. Maybe James and Romans or no, it wasn't James and Romans. Well, maybe it was, I don't, I have no idea. Maybe it was Hebrews. I was, uh, but whatever year it was, we started out with a fairly sizable number of quizzers in uh from the church uh and i forget how many i think we had four or five teams or something like that and for us that was that was a decent number of teams uh and we but we we had a good chunk of people like we had one quizzer who was the you know 90 a quiz quizzer uh, basically he was the number one quizzer in the district uh and basically he would pretty unless something went sideways in a quiz he was going to walk away with a with a 90 um and we mostly just ignored him <laughs> because you know it was pretty reasonable like i mean obviously we respected the, the investment that he that he put in but basically as long as we just didn't get in his way he was going to pull 90s and life was great uh, but after that there was like a, the next group of folks where they were doing pretty well but they were you know 40 
40 points, uh, 60 points sometimes, somewhere in that ballpark. And they were doing okay. Uh, very healthy quizzers. Uh, but then the the vast majority of our quizzers were just getting zeros. Just, just zero after zero after zero. And, you know, they'd get bonus questions and they wouldn't be able to answer them. And, and that was just, it was clear that they weren't, they weren't memorized. And what we wanted to do was uh, encourage them to get from zero to some points on the board, right? And so we sat them down for a weekend. Um, it, well, not a weekend. It was a Saturday. We, we had them come over and we just worked with them and wrote, memorized 10 verses. And every single one of them, it took, it was brutal. It took like four or five hours, but every single one of them memorized 10 verses, uh, synonymous level, basically, uh, maybe a little bit better than synonymous, but somewhere, certainly not verbatim. Uh, but pretty close. Uh, and they got those, they got those down, those down with references though. And then they, uh, we went to the next meet a couple weeks later and every single quizzer on every team got at least one question. Now to your point, Scott, most of them only got like one or two questions for the meet, but they got them correct. So they, so they went from zero to one, uh, or zero to two or something via that effort and it invoked a, an ex, a level of excitement where a lot of those people came back and started memorizing again. But I, but then it trailed off pretty quickly. It was a short-lived experiment. So like it, it boosted things for probably about three meets, two meets, two or two or three meets, and then we started you know kind of falling back into old patterns again. And I it I wonder I've got a frame a mental framework that might help explain this but I don't know if it's true this is very anecdotal and you know I'm I'm not really sure if I believe it this but the, here's a here, my mental framework is thus I think there's we don't as a society as a as a as an American and even Canadian society we don't rote memorize uh we don't put a lot of emphasis in rote memorization other societies are very different right so one that springs to mind is like south uh south korea very very rote memorization uh very str very strongly encourages rote memorization and so students who work up through the years toward adulthood in south korea are you know unsurprisingly, typically, and there's always exceptions, typically are very good at rote memorization. Uh, students growing up to maturity in the U.S. Uh, and Canada, for that matter, too, although I think a little bit uh, less so is the case in Canada. They're a little bit better at, at other things. But in the U.S., we struggle with rote memorization. We encourage more of a, well, why memorize when you can look that up, you know, kind of thing. And uh, and our and our teaching and our, our teaching, our discourse, our interactivity encourages that uh in in what we do so when you're going to certainly public education uh but even in in homeschooling i don't think there's a lot of emphasis necessarily on memorization unless the parents are are particularly focusing on that and so there's some good things and bad things about this uh that 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 this outcome right so i'm a pilot a private pilot um uh, although I, I do teach ground school and, and a few other things, but, um, uh, in, in general aviation, the general aviation piloting world in the U S by and large. And again, this is very, um, this is painting with an extremely broad brush and there are exceptions everywhere, but generally speaking, a typical average pilot in the U S is going to be a much more capable pilot, uh, than a pilot from, uh, say South Korea, again, with very high rote memorization in terms of 
actively flying the aircraft in non-standard conditions. But a pilot from South Korea is going to be much, much, much better at quoting you line and verse of what the regulations happen to be. So a South Korean pilot will be much more capable of, let's say, following a procedure to the letter of the law than, say, an American pilot would be. But the American pilot will be able to deal with deviations and failures in flight a better than, say, a South Korean pilot. And so there's, there's, there's some pros and cons to each approach. So the reason I get, go into that long sort of ex- explanation there is I think a lot of the USCN kids who are growing up haven't experienced what memorization is. So a coach might be saying to a kid who's coming in who's, who's, who is, says, hey, my friend told me about quizzing, I want to learn more. Or the parent heard about quizzing and is bringing their kid to practice saying, hey, I'd like to have my kid try out you know, quizzing and, and that sort of stuff. And the coach says, okay, great. Uh, go memorize this chapter and our practice is next week, you know, kind of thing. It's sort of, I wonder if that's somewhat equivalent to telling a kid, hey, go knit, knit a sweater this weekend uh, and then come. And if you don't knit the entire sweater, that's okay. Just bring to practice next week, whatever of the sweater you have knitted and we'll we'll help you if you've got any questions or something like that. And I wonder if if you know if if somebody is never memorized uh, or doesn't have experience doing that, it's it's really daunting. Whereas like if you know how to knit, knitting a sweater is not that big of a deal. But if you don't know how to knit, it's like well, how on earth do you get started? <laughs> how how do you do this? How does this? How do you make this work? The effort is uh, I can imagine the effort. Well, not the effort. The it's like breaking the sound barrier. How do you get started? How do you do the thing? And that can be extremely daunting. But then the second, and so that's sort of like mental framework number one. And then mental framework number two is I don't think, I have a suspicion that most kids don't have an environment where they have the opportunity to have a, to set a daily routine for memorizing where they're going to say like, okay, between the hours of four o'clock and four thirty, or whatever it happens to be every day, that is my memorizing time. And it is sacred time that I'm going to do, you know, memorizing. But if they're in sports, they certainly like they do school until let's say three thirty or two thirty or whatever it happens to be. And then they're like, okay, now I do track and track is an hour and a half and that is that is sacred time for track. Uh, I don't think there is an equivalent capability for most uh, quizzers unless they're homeschooled and their parents are on board with actually attaching this as a homeschool task to have a, a sort of set time. And even in the homeschool universe, it may be that you can connect half an hour of memorization as a as a task to be done in the set of tasks that need to be done for homeschooling that day. But that's not a dedicated slice of time. That's a task that's part. So it's better than it's better than zero. Right. But what I'm saying, it's still not like, you know, always at four o'clock every day or always at 730 every morning or whatever it happens to be. Uh, And so I think because of that, we those perhaps those two frameworks, if they're true, may contribute to some of the struggle. And I wonder if if those two frameworks are true, what can coaches do to address each one of those frameworks? That's very interesting. I th- I don't know the extent to which memorization is um, a learned or tested skill nowadays. Like, do kids still memorize the states, the United States, and the capitals, or the presidents, or the? I I have no idea. 
Um, but I think even when I was growing up, it's not like I did a ton of memorization outside of a Bible quizzing. Um, but maybe the the level of experience that I did have with rote memorization was um, enough for quizzing to not be to not have a larger barrier to entry than it otherwise would have. That could absolutely be the case um, if when a you kid were, is not memorizing at all. Yeah, when you were growing up, did you did you uh, practice music? Did you learn an instrument? No, I did not because yeah. I was no good. Um, <laughs> I think I, I did uh, half of the John was it John Thompson um, first grade um, book of piano music, and mm-hmm. that was about it. Um, until until I was in high school, I did do. Um, about a semester of guitar, but I didn't do music growing up. Sure. Sorry to interrupt you in, in your course of thinking there, but it was just, it, you were talking about like, maybe there are other experiences that are analogous to memorizing scripture. So like if you're learning a musical instrument, you get to a point where you're memorizing the music that you're going to perform. That's a, that's a, I mean, it's not words, it's a different kind of memorization, but it's still memorizing. It is, but there's not a whole lot of memorization that goes on in sports, especially youth sports. Mm. Um, and then just in technological advancements have made it less important for you to memorize, right? Like there's no reason, like I remember sitting on the floor going through our set of encyclopedias, um, and it was cool to think about what I could remember and what I couldn't remember where now we have the internet and Google and Wikipedia. Right. Um, and so you, you literally don't need those skills, um, for lots of areas of life anymore. Um, so that, I think I think that could absolutely be part of it. It's you you might be telling a kid to go like knit a sweater, and if you just get a little bit done, that's okay. And they're they have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mean, were you talking about pure time or consistent time or like e- even the ability to carve out consistent time? I think or the all skill of, of carving it out. I think it's all of the above. I think there's there's the skill of being able to carve it out. There's the skill of having the discipline to always do it. Because I mean, if you have the if you have the ability even to say, okay, four to four thirty is memorization time. There is a certain amount of self discipline required to ensure that you actually do that, right? Um, and each day that you get to the four o'clock time, if that's your time the quizzer still has the choice of do I actually sit down and memorize or do I just kind of stare off into space for half an hour and then say, well, I tried. And that, that, that requires a certain amount of self-discipline, but in certain families, and I, I suspect it's probably a majority of families, a quizzer who even has that self-discipline, it's really hard uh, for a lot of kids to actually even have the opportunity to say, well, here's my half an hour that I'm going to devote to memorizing every day. Uh, and so for a lot of kids, it's like, well, on Mondays, it has to be 730 in the morning, but on Tuesdays, it has to be four o'clock for these reasons. Uh, but 50% of the time on Tuesdays, something else happens and I, I don't get home in time or something gets in the way. And a lot of that can be outside the quizzers control. Yeah, for sure. And I don't want to draw too many blanket statements around uh, like intelligence and career success and things like that. But I think if you were investing in the future of a kid, Mm, like the kids that went to private school or public school or did running start running start and were able to manage all of that and still put time into quizzing to compete at a high level through being a senior um, are the exact individual. Like you would talk to them for three minutes and you'd be like, well, this is where I would choose to invest. Um, And so like 
and my my point is it absolutely took a different level of effort, self-discipline, maturity, you know, whatever kind of words you want to throw around there to be able to like handle all of that. I, you know, I think, um, homeschool kids did have it easier. That doesn't mean it was easy to be really good at quizzing, even if you're homeschooled. Right. Right. Um, but it took different skills of time management and discipline and routine to be both good at quizzing when you had so many other constraints on your time. Yeah, that's very true. Um, there's definitely a correlation there. The question in my mind is what's the causation? What's the, what's the directional arrow of the causation, right? Or is there, you know, a third, a third entity here in the causal arrow relationship? Um, but assuming that there's not assuming it's just, um, you know, self-discipline leading to stronger quizzing, uh, and then self-discipline also leads to other outcomes that lead to you being a better investment uh, in your analogy there. Uh, or is it, is the arrow, the inverse, the fact of being in quizzing that causes somebody to be motivated to memorize that then says, well, if I want to actually memorize, how do I go about doing it? Well, I have to develop self-discipline to be able to score well and therefore quizzing caused the self-discipline, which then caused the outcome that you're talking about. And I, I, I have no idea, but it's, I, I wonder how, yeah, I, I think, I think the arrow there's, there's reasonable ideas to say that the arrow could go in any direction. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a, I mean, it's super interrelated, but I do think you need to have the quizzer have some sense that they even care about being more motivated. <laughs> Or right. like, oh yeah, carving out time for quizzing. So I don't think, I mean, I think the first step is always getting people involved and answering at least one question, and then let them figure it out for themselves. Um, but I mean, a lot of those most impressive kids came from households with very impressive parents. So I, like, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it feels kind of defeatist, where there's cycles and trends and history and you know family structure and um, and we're just you know interacting with this tiny slice of someone's life. Yeah. But I mean, a coach can have some influence there, right? So, I mean, we had quizzers who came from, let's call it unstable homes where, uh, home was not a place where you did school. Uh, it was not, it was not a place where you could actually have a space where you could focus on doing anything scholastic, let alone, you know, memorization. And so what they would do, what these kids would do, would they would stay late at school and they would do all their homework at, at the school building just after school let out or they would go to a library, that kind of thing. We provided in quiz practice, um, uh, not all the time, but we would provide opportunities for uh, such quizzers to have space where they could just go and wrote memorize. So if our practices were, let's say, 45 minutes long or an hour long, we would open up the building uh, half an hour, 45 minutes early and uh, quizzers who wanted to could show up early. And it was like, it was unstructured go be by yourself time, but it was a space where they could just go off and start memorizing and quoting themselves or quoting to each other before practice started. And that certainly helped uh, some, some quizzers who didn't have the opportunity to, you know, carve out time, reliable time on their own. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you've said a lot of things that I think can be really, really helpful. So it's carving out that, that time, um, either before or after both 
of a scheduled quiz practice. I think the very structured, we're all going to memorize 10 verses. I think that can be wildly helpful because you're, you're giving strategies of how to memorize and able to do it hands-on because the same strategy is not going to work for every person. Um, and you can ideally show results. And if it peters out, it doesn't mean – if like the results peter out, it doesn't mean that it was a bad idea that you shouldn't do again. Right. Right. Um, it just means that something else is required to tap into a different level of motivation for those quizzers that it petered out for. Or there is nothing to tap into another level of motivation. Um, or it just needs to be repeated, right? So, like, we did the... Potentially. The, the 10 verses worked for about, you know, three months or so. And it's like maybe once every three months we needed to have a Saturday where we just got together and redid those 10 verses or something. Um, and, I mean, to be fair, I was a whole lot younger back then and probably didn't do a very good job on follow-up uh, in terms of like, okay, great, you guys did well. Now, what are you going to do now to build on that initial success? I probably just said, hey, great, it succeeded. <laughs> and I and I didn't do much follow-up. Yeah. So um, I think those are really helpful. As I said before, anything a coach can do to make a learning curve easier on a quizzer would be helpful because I memorized full material with no references for two years, um, made Great West. And while I was there, I just observed. I was like, seems pretty easy for these kids that know references. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, why don't, why don't I just try some of that? And so between Great West and District Championships, I added references for half the verses that I knew. And District Championships was way easier than quizzing had ever been for me. But, you know, mm-hmm. but like I had I had to just observe it and learn that someone could have just told me that um, and I would have been quizzing at a higher level, you know, a year earlier or longer. Um, but that, again, that doesn't change motivation level. Um, it could, I guess it could potentially stem the, the petering out of motivation for a very, very new quizzer, um, helping, helping them out with some of that stuff. Like I remember, um, when my wife was a rookie, she got a question, um, a reference question and the quiz master said, what's your question? And no one had ever told her that <laughs> about mm. providing a question. Right. And so she got it wrong. Um, and like that kind of thing, like preparing a quizzer for like, if you have to give a rebuttal or you have to provide a question so that they're not just completely blindsided by it as a, you know, 11, 12 year old, those things obviously are can be really helpful to maintaining motivation or not creating demotivation. Um, yeah, I think the muscles of motivation, motive of memorization and teaching different skills around that. Cause like I went to Bible camps where they would do the, you know, write a verse on the whiteboard and erase words at a time. And I was in Awana and they probably did that and other techniques. And my mom probably did other memorization techniques with me to learn Latin conjugations, you know, or European countries or something. Um, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe kids these days have less opportunities to learn how to memorize stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up. Uh, want to remind everybody that if we have said anything that you disagree with, we really, really want to hear with, uh, from you. But even if you've agreed with anything, we'd love to hear from you too. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. 
and we'd like to hear from you. Dissenting opinions always get into the front of the line, but uh, we certainly read every email that uh, gets sent to us. And then you can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing, and you can chat with us in kind of almost sort of real near time on the Slack channel Inside uh, Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening, and thank you, Scott. Thank you to Griffin for rambling and ranting along with me, and thank you to our listeners for listening to our rambles and our rants.